Let's continue our worship by looking at God's word. This morning, we're going to be in the book of Jonah. Book of Jonah. Jeffrey Dahmer is one of the most notorious criminals in the history of the United States. How's that for an opening? Nicknamed the Milwaukee Monster, Dahmer was a serial killer who, over the course of 23 years, took the lives of 17 people in gruesome and awful ways. Carla Faye Tucker killed two people with a three-foot pickaxe. At her trial, she testified that with each swing of the axe, she felt intense enjoyment. Even by the standards of war criminals, Comrade Doik was especially heinous. Doik was a commander in the Khmer Rouge, and he served as Pol Pot's uh, primary executioner. Under Doik's direct commands, more than 18,000 men, women, and children were interrogated, tortured, and killed. What do these three people have in common besides their heinous crimes? All three went on later to confess Christ as their Lord and Savior and be baptized by a gospel-preaching church. How does that make you feel? Certainly, I would imagine you may feel some skepticism. That's fair. Um, people uh, finding religion when they're in danger of being punished for their crime is not an unusual thing. But I want you to push past your skepticism for a second. Put that aside. How does it make you feel that if their profession of faith was sincere, that these people, the Milwaukee monster, a literal axe murderer, and a war criminal, might be saved, might be shown mercy? not an easy topic. I think many of us understand generally the theology involved here. We would say, well, God can save all people, and our salvation is not based on how good we are, and that uh, our own salvation was based on an unmerited grace. We might affirm that all sin, any sin of any severity, would render us guilty before God. We might agree with all those things generally. But when we move from the general to the particular, not just God's ability to save all people, but God's ability to save those people, that's when things get a little uncomfortable for us. I wrestled with this myself not long ago. It was a few months ago. It was uh, the Sunday after the Taliban retook control of Afghanistan. And that Sunday, I gave the pastoral prayer during our corporate gathering. And as part of that prayer, I prayed that God would have mercy on and save the members of the Taliban. And I'll be honest, I struggled with that. And I know from talking with many of you afterwards, you agreed that that prayer was the right thing to do, but you also struggled with the idea of praying for mercy for people who've done such evil. The examples I've been given have been purposely uh, extreme. Murderers, war criminals, terrorists. So let's bring it closer to home. How would you feel if Someone who disagrees with you on every political issue was shown mercy. Now, be clear, I'm not saying how would you feel if they came to agree with you on all of your political opinions, but rather, how would you feel someone who's just diametrically opposed to all the ways that you thought this country should be run? How do you feel about the idea of them being shown mercy for the deeds they've done? How do you feel about the idea of the person that you got into an argument online with being shown mercy? How do you feel about mercy being extended to your 
neighbor who parks in front of your driveway and leaves their trash on your lawn, or the coworker whose lazy work creates more work for you, the family member who mocks your faith. You might say, God, I agree that you can save all people, but I would rather you not save that person. Well, as we heard in this morning's scripture reading from Romans, God has said, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So what happens when that mercy and that compassion are directed at someone that we'd rather receive wrath and judgment? These are important questions that we need to take with us this morning as we venture into Jonah. Now, before we dig into the text, it's worth saying, one of the things that makes studying Jonah a little tricky is that most of us come with some preconceived notions. And in a lot of ways, it's the polar opposite of many of the other minor prophets we've been studying. Right? It's unlikely for some of the other minor prophets that many of you came in saying, oh, I know this one. I know how it goes. I get it. Um, not the case with Jonah. If I were to say peanut butter and, you're probably thinking jelly. I just heard people mumble that. Right? That's something in your brain that says, oh, I know how this one goes, and you fill in the gap. And it's really, really, really hard not to do that with Jonah. Um, even if this is your first Sunday at church, there's a very good chance, if you grew up in the United States, that you came here this morning, and you said, ah, Jonah, got it. Guy disobeys God, gets eaten by a fish as punishment. Got it. Know that. And if you grew up in the church, there's a very good chance you've heard this story over and over and over and over again. But what story is it that you've heard? I, um, my wife will tell you I'm the theological editor of all of the books in our house, so I have to read them all, including the kids' books. And one of the things that's been really interesting when you read um, children's Bibles, children's Bible stories, when you watch kids' cartoons uh, that involve the story of Jonah, you'll see that more often than not, what's being conveyed is a story of moral behavior. It's a story um, maybe about obedience, right? Jonah disobeyed God, God punished him, so obey God, or you too may get eaten by a fish. Um, or maybe it's a story about um, loving your enemies. Um, this is the VeggieTales version. Uh, obey God. Um, I, I just got some looks that I'm taking from kids, like I promise the VeggieTales is good. I'm not going to gonna tear them apart. Um, you know, the VeggieTales version, right? God called Jonah to be nice to people that he hated, and Jonah didn't, and that was bad, so he was punished for it. Now, I want to be clear. Those are both messages that are in Jonah. It is certainly um, out in <laughs> critical that we obey God. There are penalties when we don't obey God, so don't get it wrong. That's a very important thing we need to know. And certainly, it's important that we love our enemies and pray for our enemies and seek the salvation of our enemies. These are important things. But that's not actually the main point of Jonah. Again, I see some looks from kids. I know to go against a talking tomato is neither safe nor right, but we're going to do it. Um, no, all of those morality points are absolutely true, but the Bible is not primarily concerned about do these things so you can be a good person. The Bible is primarily a story of God his glory, his character, and the redemption of his people. The book of Jonah is substantially more concerned with God's actions than Jonah's actions. Now, as we get in here, it's going to read very different from the other minor prophets that we've been studying, the other prophetic books. Uh, this is not a good sign that I'm just starting my countdown timer. Sorry, gang. Um, the other prophetic books um, are primarily prophecy. There's a little bit of narrative. Narrative is the now this person did that and that person did this. Most of the other prophetic books, as you've probably noticed, have very little of that. Some of them, it's literally just a sentence or two. The prophet showed up and then he said, dot, dot, dot. And the whole rest of the book is what he said. Jonah is the exact opposite of that. Jonah is a narrative. The, um, 
the prophecy that he gives to Nineveh is five words in the Hebrew language. So it's very different than the other minor prophets we've been studying. If we look at it, we're going to see two parallel scenes. Um, the first half tells the story of a rebellious prophet, and the second half tells the story of some repentant pagans. And throughout both scenes, we're going to see some huge similarities. I'll call them out. But while the circumstances are, are similar, the actions of the people involved are very different. In fact, they upturn our expectations in a lot of ways. And throughout the entire narrative, there's one point that's repeated over and over in several different ways by just about everyone who has a speaking role in this story. And that's the idea that salvation belongs to the Lord. We're going to trace the narrative across three different sections today. An unstoppable plan, undeserved mercy, and God's unsaleable character. So if you like to take notes and you like to know where we're going, those are going to be the major notes. And because I too have had to stop and say, how do I spell that? Unassailable is U-N-A-S-S-A-I-L-A-B-L-E. You are welcome. Can't tell you how many times I typoed that over the last couple weeks. All right, so let's dig right in to Jonah 1, 1, and see the beginning of God's unstoppable plan. Jonah 1, 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So the book of Jonah starts with a prophet being commissioned by the Lord. God has something that he requires Jonah to do. He requires him to go to Nineveh and call out against it. Now, to fully understand what's going on here, we need to um, take a moment and remind ourselves, look at who Jonah was. This isn't the first time that Jonah shows up in Scripture. Uh, Jonah was a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel, He's described here in Jonah 1.1 as the son of Amittai, which tells us that this is the same Jonah from the book of 2 Kings. We've seen him before. Why does that matter? Well, let me give a Reader's Digest recap of the context and the content of the last time that Jonah gave a prophecy. First, a brief history lesson. So, uh, King Solomon dies. Israel is a united kingdom at that point. They split into two kingdoms. There's the southern kingdom of Judah that's following Rehoboam, who was Solomon's successor. And then there's the northern kingdom, which became known as Israel. And that was under the rule of Jeroboam I. Jeroboam I, um, to put it gently, was exceptionally terrible. Under his rule, Israel didn't just slide into apostasy. They ran headlong. This is like in baseball, sliding into home. Um, they practiced idolatry, paganism, they abandoned their commitment to God. <clears throat> and so Jeroboam was condemned by the Lord for doing evil, practicing idolatry, being disloyal towards God, and leading Israel into sin. That's Jeroboam, give or take a couple hundred years before Jonah. After Jeroboam came his son Nadab, he was the next king. Nadab is described in scripture as doing evil in the sight of the Lord and walking in the way of Jeroboam, his father, and causing Israel to sin. That exact same charge or some variation thereof is leveled at the nine kings between Jeroboam the first and Jeroboam the second. So uh, Jonah was the time of Jeroboam the second. There's Jeroboam first, nine kings in between, and then Jeroboam the second. Every single one of those kings had some variation of that exact charge, walking in the way of Jeroboam the first and causing Israel to sin. And so during this time, Israel was characterized by disobedience, by idolatry, by wandering away from their commitment to God. And also during this time, God repeatedly punishes Israel for their apostasy. He punishes them for their disloyalty and their disobedience, primarily through foreign invasions from their enemies. So, that brings us to the first time in the Bible that we meet Jonah. This is in 2 Kings chapter 14. It's during the reign of Jeroboam II. At this time, as I mentioned, you got 
generation after generation after generation of evil and idolatry and apostasy and God punishing Israel and punishing Israel and punishing Israel. And so at this point, Israel's affliction is described as very bitter. They were in danger, real danger, of being completely blotted out of existence. Scripture also says no one was coming to save them. They had no one who was coming to help them. They were on their own, and things were bleak, and they were dire. But then the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Jonah prophesied, and it came to pass, that under the reign of Jeroboam II, Israel's fortunes were going to change. They were going to reverse. They were going to experience a time of prosperity and success. I'll be very clear. That was not being done as a reward for them changing their behavior. In fact, Jeroboam II is described in Scripture, stop me if you've heard this before, as doing evil in the sight of the Lord and not departing from the sins of Jeroboam I and leading Israel to sin. He had that same exact charge leveled against him. So nothing changed except for the fact that just as Israel was facing certain and deserved destruction as punishment for the evil they did, God extended undeserved mercy towards them. And Jonah was the prophet who carried that message. So Jonah, at this point, when we pick up the story in Jonah 1, Jonah is no stranger to delivering a message from God. And further, he'd understand that by going to Nineveh and calling out against it, he'd be giving them the opportunity to repent, to turn away from the evil they did. And as a devout prophet, he certainly would be very aware of all of the times in history that God relented of a disaster that he had spoke of in the face of repentance. So Jonah understood that he was being called to give Nineveh the chance to experience the same undeserved mercy that Jonah's own country, Israel, had experienced. That's the context of what's going on here. That's really important. Don't miss that. So let's pick up in Jonah 1-3. How did Jonah respond? You would think, you would hope, you'd say, well, we got undeserved mercy. Cool, I'm in. Nope, not so much. Jonah 1-3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah was not on board with this plan at all. At this point in the story, we're not told why. Don't worry, that will come. But what is made clear is that Jonah wants nothing to do with this. His plan is to flee the presence of the Lord. Now, it's very unlikely that Jonah literally expected to be able to go somewhere um, outside of the Lord's, Lord's power and control and sight. As we see throughout the rest of the book of Jonah, Jonah's theology was too good for that. He, he knew it wasn't something that like, oh, once I'm out of Israel, the Lord can't catch me anymore. That's not what he was doing here. What seems more likely is that Jonah was very aware of the fact that he was not the only prophet in town. And so, he was thinking, if I get out of Dodge, God will find someone who's more on board with his plan to do this work. It's unlikely that he thought that he could thwart this plan, but he certainly thought he could thwart his part in this plan. He simply wanted no part in bringing grace to Nineveh, and so he jumped on a boat and let God get someone else to do what this has to be done. That's how distasteful it was to Jonah. So Jonah jumps on the ship to Tarshish. Um, scholars don't really know where Tarshish was. It doesn't really matter. If you're curious, some think it was Spain. Some think it was Turkey. Some think it was Great Britain. It's not that important to the story. In fact, there's good evidence to suggest that in ancient Israel, Tarshish, yes, referred to a real, actual place, but also was a placeholder for a generic faraway place. Let me give a modern example. If I said to you, oh man, next week I have to fly to Timbuktu, very few of you would think that I'm going to Africa to the actual city Timbuktu. It's understood, yes, Timbuktu is a real place, but it's understood that it's pretty far away. It's about as far away from here as, as you can go. And so likewise, regardless of where Gen Jonah was going, whether it was Spain or not, the important thing is that he jumps the first boat to the farthest place away from where he should be going. 
So I read through this section. I couldn't help think of a childhood memory. Now, I'm sure none of you have similar memories because we're all angels or kids, but um, perhaps I was just uniquely depraved because I can recall times where, for example, my mom would say, hey, David, I need you to empty the dishwasher. Oh, mom, my stomach hurts. I have to go to the bathroom. Um, And I would disappear until she got my sister to do it. Um, Again, I know none of you can relate to that. Certainly no one in the Nissenmacher household. Um, But that's what Jonah's doing here. And that's the problem, right? Is God has a message for Nineveh, and his messenger has gone AWOL. But God, in his divine wisdom, is not really all that interested in whether or not Jonah wanted to take part in this plan. We see in verse 4, the Lord's response. We see the Lord exercises his sovereignty over nature, and he sends a great storm upon the boat. To get a, a sense of what we're talking about here, how extreme these circumstances were, how it was so obvious that this was divine wrath, I think it's helpful to look at the actions of the mariners will admit I don't know a whole lot about boats. Um, yesterday, my family and I did one of those uh, dolphin cruises where you go and you dock at the top dog yacht and all that good stuff. Uh, that's about the extent of my maritime experience. So I don't, I don't claim to be a sailor. Uh, anyone who knows what they're talking about, this is not the point of the sermon that you have to give me notes afterwards. But I do know a thing or two about flying. I'll go toe-to-toe with anyone here about being a passenger on an airplane done it a lot. And something that I have learned, I've been on good planes, I've been on bad planes. Big planes, small planes, new planes, planes that were held together by bailing wire and string. Flown out of great airports and third world airports where there are goats on the side of the runway. And something that I've picked up is that you can tell if something is actually a problem or not by observing the flight crew. If a flight attendant who's done this for years doesn't even look up from their magazine, then it's probably this turbulence and things are going to be fine. But the two times in my life where, in God's grace, everything was fine, but things for a moment were not fine on an airplane, it was very obvious by observing the actions of the flight crew. This was not normal. They were not calm. They were kind of freaking out. Um, I won't give the whole story, but one of them was almost running out of runway at Burbank Airport into Hollywood Boulevard. That's happened twice at that airport, so it is a thing. Um, I think that's a fair lens to view verses 5 through 15 through, right? We can look at the actions of these mariners and get a sense of this wasn't just a bad storm. This clearly was divine. It was God. These were mariners. They were professional sailors, and they were sailing out of Joppa. Joppa was a major seaport. All that to say, this was the big leagues. This was not their first time out on the ocean. We see how they react. They take the extreme step of throwing all the cargo they were transporting overboard. Again, not a sailor, but I would think that if you were a sailor and your job was to get cargo from here to there, and at some point in the journey you said, go throw all the cargo overboard, things have gone pretty haywire. Quickly it becomes apparent, even to these pagan sailors, that what they are experiencing is supernatural in nature. They realize that it's a divine punishment being doled out, and they figure out that it's because of Jonah, and he comes clean and he tells them, well, I was trying to flee the presence of the Lord. So the sailors are getting more and more afraid, and they ask Jonah, because they don't know it's his God, they're not familiar with Yahweh, they say, well, what needs to be done to end this wrath? That picks up in Jonah 1.12. He said, he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. At first, that seems super noble, self-sacrificing. He didn't want them to go down with him. It's actually just doubling down on his disobedience. You know how else Jonah could have stopped this wrath? By obeying God. (laughs) He could have said, you know what, I know why this wrath is coming. Let's go back. I'm going to vow that I'm going to go to Nineveh and do what was commanded of me. Um, That would have been a viable option, but that is not an acceptable option to Jonah. In fact, he would rather die than bring the message of mercy to Nineveh. 
And he's willing to put his blood on these sailors' hands to do it. The sailors make a valiant effort to avoid having to do this. Even they, in God's common grace, know that killing an innocent person is wrong. So they try to get to shore. The storm won't let them. So they cry out to Jonah's God for forgiveness for what they're about to do. And these pagan sailors understand an important truth about salvation, about God. In verse 114, they say, You, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. They understand that this is God's prerogative, and so they throw Jonah into the sea. What we've seen so far in the narrative is that one of the ways that salvation, salvation belongs to the Lord is that when the Lord has decided to do it, it will come to pass. We cannot frustrate his plans. Jonah was not able to change God's plans. He was disobedient. And that ought to give us great confidence because that means that we can't frustrate the Lord's plans through our incompetence. Think about that as applied to sharing the gospel. If Jonah couldn't mess up God's plans to show mercy to Nineveh by outright rebellion, then certainly, as we're called to share the gospel with unbelievers, if God has purposed somebody to be saved, we can't screw it up because of our lack of eloquence, our lack of persuasiveness. What an incredibly freeing thing for our evangelism. God's purposes cannot be thwarted. Who God intends to be saved will be saved. Brings us to our next point. We're going to see two, two for the price of one, two undeserved instances of mercy. We'll see it in Jonah's rescue, and we're going to see it on God's or in God's mercy on Nineveh. So picking up in chapter 1, the very end, verse 17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Some of y'all are looking a little confused. We said this bullet point was about mercy and rescue. How is getting swallowed by a fish rescue? Okay, did you miss up, mix up your bullet points? You're missing something here. Isn't the fish a punishment from God? I understand where you're coming from. And again, this is like the Sunday school version, right? Jonah disobeys. The punishment is he gets swallowed by a fish, and he gets put in an underwater timeout until he promises to be a good boy. But I think that version of the story is probably reading too much of our own experiences into the text. Um, I think the correct understanding, as, as I've studied the history, would be that Jonah would see being thrown overboard as the calamity, and he would view the fish as a means of rescue. I understand this entirely backward from how we'd all understand this. In our context, right, we look at this and we say, all right, well, um, we put ourselves in Jonah's shoes. Ship was close enough to shore that the sailors, if it wasn't for the storm, could have rowed back there, so it couldn't be that far off the coastline. Maybe they were following a coastline up, or maybe they just hadn't got that far out of uh, port. Says that when Jonah is thrown in the sea, the storm stops, so the reason why they couldn't get back to shore is over. So we kind of figure, like, all right, well, he got thrown off the boat. He's Hopefully he's a decent enough swimmer. He can make it to shore. shore. Oh, no, a fish. Uh-oh. There goes Jonah's big plan. Um, that's probably what, how we would view that. I don't think it's how Jonah would view it for three reasons. First, it would have been historically very unlikely that Jonah would have known how to swim. Let's start with that. Um, that's, that's really important for us to forget. Uh, I ran a, um, I, did a, I did a search the other day. I realized I should have just sent a, an email to John C. But I, I did a search on realtor.com. In this surrounding area, 72% of single-family houses for sale have a swimming pool. We sort of take knowing how to swim for granted, especially here in Naples. Um, in Jonah's time, knowing how to swim would have been the huge exception, not the rule. In fact, historical sources from that era show that even professional sailors didn't necessarily know how to swim. Um, there's historical documents that talk about navies where a ship capsizes a very swimmable distance from shore, and everybody on board drowns. If professional sailors couldn't be expected to know how to swim, this prophet almost certainly did not. 
Second, in the ancient Jewish mind, they did not view the ocean the way that we do. We are in Naples, and we view the ocean as this relaxing thing to float in, work on our tan, maybe try to grab one of those little fish that come by. Um, that is not how the ancient Hebrew mind would understand the ocean. It is a scary, chaotic place. There's one Jewish commentary, they're called Midrashes, that said, and I quote, were it not for God's direct intervention, every man who ever stepped foot into the sea would die immediately. That's how they viewed the sea. And third and most important, we see from Jonah's own words that he saw the fish as rescue. As we get into uh, Jonah's prayer in chapter 2, in just a second, second, we'll see that from the belly of the fish, he doesn't cry up, he doesn't offer up a cry for help, he doesn't offer up a prayer for lament. What he prays, and we'll explain this in a second, is a thanksgiving psalm. It's a psalm for a deliverance that's already been experienced. He was cast in the ocean, he expects to die, he thought he was beyond saving, and then God in his mercy saved Jonah even as Jonah was in the act of rebelling against God. So, let's take a look at Jonah's prayer here in chapter 2. Like the entire book of Jonah, the point of this psalm is not so we understand Jonah better. This is not what are his motivations, what's he like. The point of this psalm is a reflection on who God is. We even see on how the psalm is bracketed. You'll notice the verse right before Chapter 2 is uh, the Lord appointed, dot, dot, dot. And you'll see after the psalm, that's uh, 2.10, and the Lord spoke, dot, dot, dot. God is the primary actor here. This psalm is about God and his character and what he did. It takes the form of a Thanksgiving psalm, as I mentioned. Thanksgiving psalms, uh, it's a very specific format, an introduction, a description of past distress, an appeal to God, a description of rescue, and a final closing praise. And that's what we see here. We see the introduction in verses 2 through 3, so Jonah kind of orients to what's going on. Verses 4 through 6 is a description of this past distress. Jonah felt cast off from God. He felt like death was imminent, the water closing around him. He was ready to die. The weeds wrapped around his head. He couldn't escape. Jonah expected to die for his rebellion. Verse 7 is the appeal to God for help. He remembered the Lord. That's not to say he forgot who the Lord was up until that point. Remembered is a figure of speech, meaning he, he thought deeply about, he prayed to the Lord. He cried out for help. And the second half of verse 7, there's a rescue provided. God heard Jonah's prayer and responded to it, saved him. And finally, the psalm ends with a two-part phrase. First, as Mark read earlier, Jonah reflects on the fact that God is superior to the false gods. Again, think about the immediate context. They're on this boat, trouble was happening, all these pagan sailors were uh, praying to all their various gods, but Jonah knows that only his God can save. The second piece of praise at the end of this psalm is that Jonah acknowledges that salvation belongs to the Lord. If we were to summarize the entire book of Jonah in a single sentence, that would be a pretty good one. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord in at least three ways. First, as we see in the book of Jonah, salvation is found in the Lord. Those who earnestly seek the Lord with repentance and submission find salvation. Second, salvation is exclusive to the Lord. The false gods of the sailor couldn't sailors couldn't save them. Only the one true God could. And third, and this is really important to the overall message of Jonah, salvation is the prerogative of the Lord, is the choice of the Lord. He has mercy on whom he will have mercy. He judges whom he will judge. Jonah did not deserve to be rescued. That much is clear. Yet God, in his divine wisdom, decided to save Jonah, for those of us who are in Christ, Jonah's psalm should resonate with us. We can probably map out our life pre- and post-Christ against this psalm. We were rebels. We were facing impending judgment and punishment. Yet God, for no reason of our own, saved us spur us to appreciate the gift 
of mercy that's been given to us. And then we would hope that Jonah then would similarly take this experience and say, all right, I get it. It was an act of mercy we weren't deserved when Israel was spared. It was an act of mercy I wasn't owed when I was saved. All right, Lord, I get it. We hope that's what's going to happen. But as we will find, maybe not so much. So we go into chapter 3 here. This is the second, uh, second element of undeserved mercy. We're going to see the mercy extended to the Ninevites. Chapter 3, if you look at chapter 3, uh, verse 1, and you look at chapter 1, verse 1, it's easy for me because they're on this, I can see them in one page spread, others of you might have to flip a little bit. You'll notice a bit of deja vu. Jonah 1.1, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Jonah 3.1, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, right? This is almost the exact same thing. It's a repetition here. You could even imagine that if Jonah had been obedient in the first place, that Jonah 3.3 is what would come after Jonah 1.2, right? God says, Jonah, go here, and then we pick up in Jonah 3.3, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. That's how the hallmark version of the story ought to have gone, but it didn't because God wanted to teach us something about his character. So finally, Jonah sets off on his journey to Nineveh, and when he gets there, he tells the Ninevites that they have a problem. In uh, chapter 3, verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So just like it was important for us to stop for a moment and um, think about who Jonah was, we should probably stop and think about who Nineveh was. Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. As Assyria gained power during this period, they were known throughout the world for cruelty and brutality. Give you a sense of what I'm talking about. Uh, relics that have been uncovered from Nineveh specifically and Assyria generally show all sorts of cruelty, torture, dismemberment, death. The documents that have been found from the empire, which are actually fairly... Um, fairly extensive. One of the kings had a hobby of preserving his library. In those artifacts, Nineveh is not only shown as cruel, they celebrate their cruelty. They're excited about it, about their brutality. Specifically, the Ninevites had done great evil against the people of Israel. Nearly every reference in the Bible to Nineveh is about either their evil, or the judgment that is coming on account of their evil. In fact, the evils of Nineveh are listed at length in Nahum, but you're going to have to wait a couple weeks for that sermon. That's a little coming attraction preview there. But all throughout the Bible, we see that Nineveh is an enemy of God's people. And the archaeological uh, records confirm this as well. It confirms what the Bible says. Of course they do, because the Bible is true. Reliefs found in the palaces of Nineveh depict Jews being impaled, dismembered, decapitated, and enslaved by the Ninevites. And so, these Ninevites, they wouldn't be confused. They wouldn't say, wait a minute, we thought we were good, morally upright people who did good things. They knew that they were brutal and cruel. So Jonah's message was simple. In 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. This is an indictment against the city from the Lord. Even though this was the pagan capital of a pagan empire, all nations are accountable to God. Through Jonah, God is putting Nineveh on notice. They will be overthrown. They will be destroyed for their evil. How did Nineveh respond? Look at Jonah 3.5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So immediately the people believed and obeyed. Notice the contrast here. You've got the supposedly pious Jonah who gets the message from the Lord and disobeys. 
And then we've got these pagans who get a message from the Lord, and they obey. They repent. All of Nineveh, starting with the common people, from the least to the greatest, and culminating the king himself, believes the message that Jonah gives. The king issues a royal proclamation. It says, we're, we're to fast, we're to wear sackcloth. These are things um, in that culture that were ways to make yourself extremely uncomfortable to show how penitent you were. Not just the people, he says, even the animals. Put them in sackcloth. Don't let them eat or drink. And more important than these genuine prayers and these genuine signs of sorrow, it also says that they turn, or part of the king's decree, is that they should turn from their evil ways. Repent. Stop doing those things. At this point, the king, just like the pagan sailor before him, says a profound theological truth, Jonah 3, 9. You'll notice he's giving this decree and saying we're to do this and we're to do that. Let's fast, let's uh, sackcloth, let's turn from our evil ways. But then he says in 3, 9, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. He understands something that even Jonah doesn't understand. The decision on whether or not to save this city or destroy this city is solely the Lord's. It's remarkable. So much so that the way that the entire city of Nineveh comes to repentance and believes this message is used explicitly by Jesus in the New Testament. If we look at Matthew 12, I'll just give the, the uh, mall map view of what we're talking about here. Matthew 12, verse 38. There's some scribes and some Pharisees, that is to say religious leaders of the day, and they said to Jesus, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And then Christ then goes and lists two different aspects of the sign of Jonah. He first says, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So he says, look, you want proof? You want a sign? My death, burial, and resurrection is all the sign you need. Just as Jonah was saved, I will die, and I will come back, and that is the sign you're getting. So that's one aspect and the, the typology there is intentional. The idea that this is all of the proof that you need. But Christ actually goes beyond that. There, there's actually a, a sharper point being made here that's really important to understanding what's going on in Nineveh here. In uh, verse 41, he says, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, Something greater than Jonah is here. So think about what he's saying. You had um, Nineveh, who knew nothing of Yahweh, nothing of the Lord. They had none of this special revelation from God. They didn't know, except for what God put on every human being's heart in our conscience. They did not have the law written down. They didn't know all that was required of them. They were pagans. They were unbelievers. And then you've got Jonah, the world's worst prophet, a disobedient, rebellious, racist jerk. Yet, when they heard this message, they believed and repented. And what Christ is saying here is, look, you have the revelation of God. You have the scripture. You know what's required of you. You know what God has done for your people. So you're not naive. You're, you, don't, uh, you know your uh, right hand from your left hand, unlike the Ninevites. You know the, you know the score. And I'm not Jonah. Christ is the perfect, obedient prophet. He did all that his father willed him. He lived a perfect life. He had love and compassion and mercy and kindness. And if you don't believe my message, then even the men of Nineveh will rise up on the last day and say, and this is precise theological language, you boneheads, like, do you not understand even we saw the truth of this message and you had something so much greater you had the knowledge of revelation and you had christ himself 
the true and better Jonah, and you rejected it. It's important that we understand that Jonah is not just a morality tale. So, let's look at Jonah 3.10. How did God respond? When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. The Ninevites experienced God's mercy. They didn't expect it, they weren't owed it, but they experienced it. Now, I want to be clear here, there, there's, there's an important point we have to make so we're not reading something into the text that's not there. Their repentance and belief does not necessarily equal conversion. The, the text is silent on that. So let's not read into the text that that's not there. What is in the text is that the Ninevites were given a warning from God, they took it seriously, they showed genuine repentance, and so God stayed his hands out of mercy. As we see later in scripture, eventually Nineveh once again becomes known for evil, so it's clear that the repentance wasn't permanent, but it also is clear that in this case, it wasn't required for the repentance to be permanent for God to stay his hands from destroying them at that particular moment in time. So just as Israel had experienced undeserved mercy based on Jonah's earlier message, Nineveh is now experiencing that same mercy. Now there's quite an indictment here, in that, and we've seen this all throughout the Minor Prophets, and we see this all throughout the Old Testament, that God's people, when shown this mercy, their response is, is frankly, apathetic when compared to these Ninevites. What an indictment. Nineveh responds with humility and reverence and repentance to this message. And so God chooses at that time not to destroy them. All right, we're going to close out by looking at God's unassailable character. Once again, U-N-A-S-S-A-I-L-A-B-L-E. Unassailable character. So we haven't heard from Jonah in a while. He's been kind of quiet. You might hope that he's happy for Nineveh. Again, he had just experienced not long ago his own undeserved mercy. It would be hypocritical for him to begrudge that being offered to the Ninevites, right? Not so much. Jonah 4.1. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Jonah is ticked off. The Hebrew phrase here is about as strong as you can express someone being upset without using an expletive. Um, we see an interesting parallel between chapter 2 and chapter 4, the two prayers of Jonah. When Jonah was the recipient of unmerited grace, he prayed a psalm of praise specifically for aspects of God's character, God's goodness. But now that Nineveh received the same mercy, we'll see in a second, his prayer is a sharp criticism of God. For two through three. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this or is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. So first, we finally see why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh in the first place. He was afraid, he knew God's character, and he was afraid that God was going to act in a way consistent with his character. He was afraid that God would be God, and Jonah didn't want him to be God. Jonah wanted him to behave the way that Jonah wanted him to behave. He knew God's attributes. And you see here, Jonah is criticizing God for his attributes. Don't miss this. We see the same sort of formulation here, the um, uh, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abandoning, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. We see that all throughout Scripture. It starts in Exodus 34-6. Uh, God uses that descriptor of himself, and it's used multiple times in the Old Testament as doxology, as prayer, as a way of describing how great God is. And here, Jonah is using it as an indictment of God. 
It's an accusation of wrongdoing. How dare you, God, be slow to anger? How dare you be merciful and just? This is the same God who used those same attributes to rescue Israel at Jonah's message and to rescue Jonah from the whale right before that. But he still found fault because those attributes were being applied in a way that he found personally distasteful and he did not approve of it and he is letting God know. And just like how he would prefer to be thrown overboard than having to do what God commanded of him, he would rather die then live with the fact that God could be merciful to someone that Jonah didn't think deserved mercy. So Jonah 4.4, the Lord asked, do you do well to be angry? He asks Jonah if he's justified in his anger. Does Jonah, the disobedient prophet who is mercifully spared, the representative of Israel, who disobeys and disobeys and disobeys and has shown mercy after mercy after mercy, does he have any valid grounds of being upset here? Jonah himself confessed that salvation belonged to the Lord. Is Jonah now right to be angry that the Lord uses his possession as he pleases? Well, the book of Jonah ends with an object lesson that the Lord gives Jonah to sure help Jonah but also help all of us understand God's character. So Jonah chooses a spot outside the city to watch what happens to Nineveh. Perhaps he thought the repentance would be short-lived and therefore the mercy would be short-lived. Perhaps he thought that God would say, oh, you're right. Good call, Jonah. Send him in to destruction. We don't really know. But whatever his reason, he sets up shop outside of the city and he looks on. According to a biblical atlas I was looking at, this particular area outside of Nineveh would have been very bleak. There wouldn't have been a whole lot there. When it talks in the text about Jonah building himself a booth to sit in, um, what's most likely is some piles of rocks to help, um, to help protect against some wind and some very sparse um, brush that is a pretty poor job as a roof. That's likely what happened here. And we see in Jonah 4, 6, Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. So the Lord here, in yet another act of undeserved mercy, causes this plant to grow over Jonah's booth here to shade him from the elements. You'll notice that Jonah still hasn't picked up on his own hypocrisy. He sits outside the city. He's ticked off that Nineveh got this mercy that they didn't deserve. Yet he's exceedingly glad that God gave him this plant. He still doesn't get it. It's not getting through. So then we pick up in chapter 4, verses 7 through 9. When the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. God withdraws this small act of kindness. Just as he appointed the fish to save Jonah, he now appoints this worm to kill Jonah's beloved plant. Jonah, again, prays to die. What is it with this guy? He's a one-trick pony. God once again asks Jonah, are you right to be angry? And this time he narrows the focus down. He doesn't say, hey, are you right to be angry because I spared the Ninevites? He says, are you right to be angry because this plant is dead? Jonah says, yes, of course, the plant was important to me. So then we pick up in 4, 10 through 11, closing out here. The Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow. It came into being in a night, and it perished in a night. Should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? In response to Jonah, in response to his rage, his anger, God drives the message home. 
God's mercy towards Israel in the face of their adulterous hearts was an undeserved gift. The fish was an undeserved gift. The plant was an undeserved gift. Jonah had done nothing to cause this plant to grow. He didn't deserve it. He did nothing, had nothing to do with it. He didn't even know it existed 24 hours ago. Yet now he's angry, he's upset that something bad happened to it. Why should Jonah be right to be concerned about this plant and be angry that God is concerned about 120,000 people? Even the reference to the cattle, that seems like an odd way. I love that. It's one of my favorite ends of a biblical book, and also much cattle. Um, is proving a point. He's saying, look, even, even these animals are more important than your dumb plant, Jonah. Like, what is going on here? Get your priorities straight. I am merciful, and I am just, and I have the right to have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and you think I shouldn't do it to all these people and all these animals, yet you think I owe you this plant. point is clear here. God's character is perfect. It's unassailable. His character allows him to bring judgment on whom he will bring judgment and to extend mercy on whom he will extend mercy. So as we consider the message of Jonah, I'm going to leave you with two points of application. This first one is for any for those who are not in Christ. For you, I would sincerely implore you to hear the sign of Jonah. We all find ourselves in the same situation as the people of Nineveh. The perfect God created this world. He rules everything. He has shown us what he requires of us, both in his revealed wor word, but also even on the unbeliever's heart that convicts them for right or wrong. God has shown us what he requires. Yet just like the Ninevites, our great evil has risen up to God. Our rebellion has risen to God. Just as Jonah said to Nineveh, in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown, Jesus came to say, there's a time coming soon when the day of judgment will occur, where all of your sinful deeds and acts and thoughts will be judged, and God's eternal wrath will be poured out for your sins. But just like in the day of Jonah, this message of judgment didn't also come without a message of mercy. An opportunity to repent, to turn away from your sin, turn towards God, asking him for his undeserved mercy. So I pray that today would be the day of salvation for you. I pray that you hear this message. You have at your fingertips, in God's word, a level of revelation so much beyond what the Ninevites had. Repent and believe. If you don't know what that means, please talk to me, one of the other pastors, any other church member. We would be very happy to share with you how you too can experience the mercy of God. For those who are in Christ, we need to be more generous with the gospel. We, we know that the gospel is our only hope of life and death. It is the good news that sinners can experience mercy from God. We need to share the gospel freely. Not just with those who we like. Not just those who kind of, in everything else except for their faith, line up with us. This message of mercy is for Republicans and Democrats and Socialists and Libertarians and those weird third parties that no one likes to talk about. It's available to the people in Port Royal and it's available to the people in Immokalee. God can save people in suits and ties and people with eyebrow piercings and green hair. God can save those you agree with and those you disagree with. Those you like and those you find distasteful. Those in your hometown and those across the world. God can extend his mercy to murderers and war criminals, the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, thieves, drunkards, rebels, 
And we should all know this because such were some of us. We are washed, we are sanctified, we are made new, we are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a church, it's our call to make disciples of all nations and teach them to obey what Christ commanded. And so as we ponder, as we reflect on the message of Jonah, on God's heart of mercy, on the great salvation that we experience, on the condemnation of Jonah and Israel for not appreciating what they had been given and wanting that for everybody else. As we contemplate that, that ought to spur us to gospel outreach in Naples and around the world. Let's pray. Father, you are the God of salvation. All of your ways are right. You are right to punish sinners for their rebellion against you, and you are right to show mercy to sinners out of your compassion for them. Teach us to treasure the mercy that you have shown us. Give us a passion for the lost. Help us push out of our comfort zones, past our prejudices and our preferences, to take your message of salvation to all of the people you have placed before us here and abroad. We praise you for your goodness and your mercy. Salvation belongs to the Lord. In Christ's name.